Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would indeed speak to our hearts and minds through your word. Uh, may your spirit take your word and speak clearly to us and bless us through it, we ask. Amen. Well, uh, our, our lives are filled with a constant stream of decisions. Uh, most decisions we make in our daily lives are mundane, uh, but some of them, of course, are so important they can affect the whole course of our lives. Now then, here's a, a trivia question for you. Let's see if how you, well you would do. Uh, can you guess how many conscious decisions an adult makes on average each day? How many? Too many. There we go. There's a weary decision maker. Give me a figure. 200? More? More? Four? Anyone want to be bolder? All right. <laughs> okay. 35,000, apparently. Uh, you can Google it. Uh, it comes up repeatedly. Uh, internet research. The internet's never wrong, of course. Uh, 35,000 decisions uh, an adult makes on average each day. Uh, in contrast, young children uh, get off the hook a bit more lightly. Uh, they only have to make 3,000 decisions every day on average. So uh, the sheer number of decisions we have to make each day uh, can lead to a phenomenon called decision fatigue. Maybe you're feeling that now. Uh, decision fatigue, where your brain actually it gets tired. It says, oh, it's a bit like a muscle. I can't cope with this. Now, I'm guessing that at times uh, we all feel either weary or wary of decision-making. Uh, many dilemmas face us. How do we know uh, when it is best to listen to the advice of others and when not to? Uh, how do we know when God wants us to be flexible on our principles and when to stand immovable? Well, uh, in Acts chapter 21, uh, Paul is facing some pretty weighty and tricky decisions. And he's also being bombarded with advice from many different quarters. And as we reflect on his situation and how he moves forward, uh, we're going to discern some principles concerning decision-makings for Christians, which will help us today. So, uh, let's look more closely at Acts 21. Acts 21, we see Paul entering the home straight of his third missionary journey. It's taken in total probably between four to five years, and it's now 58 AD, and we should have a map on the board. There we go. Uh, chapter 21 opens with Paul departing from Miletus. If you were with us last week, uh, that was where he had run his ministry training course for the elders, the leadership team from the, ch the Ephesian church. So now he sets off from Miletus, and he makes good progress by sea along the north Mediterranean coast. And when he lands in Phoenicia, he stays with firstly with Christians in Tyre, uh, then Potomus and Caesarea, before then undertaking the remaining 100-kilometer journey overland to Jerusalem. We know that Paul is keen to return to Jerusalem, and we see and we can glean from Scripture he's got several reasons for this. Uh, firstly, uh, he wants to observe the Jewish pilgrimage festival of Pentecost. Uh, look back at Acts 20, verse 16 from last week. Uh, Paul had decided to, set, to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. 
Now, the Feast of Pentecost was a big event on the Jewish calendar. Uh, Diaspora Jews from all over Asia and beyond uh, would travel to celebrate this pilgrimage festival in Jerusalem. And now Paul's saying he wants to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost. Uh, He wants to reaffirm, he could say, his Jewish credentials. That's one reason he wants to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Secondly, uh, he wants to go to Jerusalem to report back to the headquarters of the church, uh, and particularly to the Jewish wing of the church, what has happened on his third missionary journey. So he wants to go back, report back, uh, but also to clear up any misunderstandings. And we also know, of course, that he had a third reason for wanting to go to Jerusalem. Uh, He is keen to promote solidarity between the Jewish and the Gentile wings of the church. Uh, We know from Romans, of course, and we get a glimpse of it later in Acts, that practically uh, he hopes to achieve this by bringing a financial aid package to the Jewish impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. Of course, this is a gift from the Gentile churches throughout Asia. But, of course, what do we see as he journeys towards Jerusalem? Uh, Opinion is divided as to whether it's a wise thing to do. Uh, As for Jesus, so also for his messenger, Paul. Jerusalem is a hotbed of opposition, not only for the Messiah, but also now for his church. And Paul is warned several times by believers en route. Uh, The Christians entire, verse 4, said this, Uh, Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. In Caesarea, verse 10, this is what is said. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Uh, Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And everyone, including Luke himself, the author of Acts, pleads with Paul not to go. Hence, we get the, the we. The author is including himself. Look at verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. These are Paul's close colleagues and traveling companions. But however, their pleas are to no avail. Uh, Paul doesn't deny their insight, but he ignores their advice. He acknowledges the danger, but affirms and reaffirms his intention still to go. Look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when they realize that they are not going to make any headway, uh, they relent and commit him to God's sovereign will. Verse 14. Uh, When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Is Paul right in being so adamant? How can Paul justify his decision when the Spirit is conveying these warnings through these various believers? And I think the answer lies in the distinction between a prediction and a prohibition. 
Uh, The Spirit has predicted the suffering that awaits Paul, but he has not prohibited Paul from going. The pleadings not to go are not born out of the Spirit's prompting, but human concern in response to the Spirit's prediction. And indeed, we know from Acts chapter 20 that the Spirit has been compelling Paul to go with the full disclosure that there will be trouble ahead. Look at Acts 20, verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. So, Paul travels to Jerusalem. Uh, On on arrival, uh, he is given a warm reception by the leadership team of the Jewish uh, Jerusalem church. However, he learns that a hazardous religious cultural minefield awaits him. There are many Jewish Christians in the city of Jerusalem who are not so likely to extend as warm a welcome to Paul. Look at verse 20 again. You see, brothers, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Uh, They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to their customs. So Paul is being told that actually there are many Jewish Christians here in the city who are quite concerned of the reports they've heard. They're erroneous, but nevertheless, they've heard these reports, these rumors. The rumors they've heard is that Paul has been instructing Jews not to follow the law anymore. Well, Paul has certainly been saying that no one can be saved by keeping the law, but he's not been saying that Jews should then ditch the law. Now, the question at the heart of this controversy is this. Is it okay for Jews who have been saved to continue to act like Jews? Uh, can Jewish Christians keep observing the law as they've always done? It's not a way of salvation. It is a way of life. Uh, can Jewish Christians continue to celebrate the Jewish festivals, observing Jewish special days, eating only kosher food? And of course, we already know Paul's answer to that. He's fine with that. He has no problem. Uh, If you recall, uh, this was what Paul addressed at some length in Romans, in our chapter just before Acts, in our series before Acts, uh, chapters 14 to 15 of Romans. There the concern is what is called disputable matters. If you remember in those chapters in Romans 14 and 15, uh, Paul makes the distinction between uh, the weak and strong Christians, those whose Christians uh, whose consciences limit their freedom, in contrast with those whose Christians have a conscience which gives them greater freedom. And yet, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem do not have the benefit of Romans chapters 14 to 15. They have been misinformed that Paul is saying to Jews, ditch the law. And hence, uh, the Jewish leadership come up with a good idea. They propose to Paul a practical way forward. They say to him effectively, look, Paul, actions speak louder than words. Paul, demonstrate to everyone that you are not anti-law by openly observing the law. Uh, Having just returned from Gentile lands, Paul would be classed by Jews as richly unclean. And therefore, 
if he undertakes the seven-day cleansing ritual prescribed by the law, then he will show the rumors to be baseless. Verse 20 to 23, this is the advice he gets. Uh, so do what we tell you. Uh, there are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, that you yourself are living in obedience, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Do you see what they're doing? Uh, they're proposing a practical way through which Paul can demonstrate his respect for the law and his respect for Jewish ethnic identity. In effect, they're asking Paul this, for the sake of the gospel, can you constrain some of your liberty? And of course, what do we see? To this, Paul agrees. So, what wisdom about Christian decision-making can we glean from the Apostle Paul? What principles guided him forward through bewilderingly complex religious and ethnic minefields? Here's the first principle. Sometimes good people come to different conclusions when looking at the same situation. Uh, Paul's dilemma about going to Jerusalem uh, is neatly summarized in the 1982 hit single of the punk rock band The Clash. Maybe you've heard of them. Uh, their song was, Should I Stay or Should I Go? A classic. Well, Paul is being bombarded with pleas not to go. And his friends are not being unwise or ungodly in their advice. But then neither is Paul being unwise or ungodly when he insists he must go. So Paul and his friends are both looking at the same situation, but they've each come to different conclusions. Uh, there is no doubt that Paul is going to face mortal peril if he goes to Jerusalem. On that they are all agreed. Uh, all his friends think he should not put himself in the way of danger, but Paul thinks that he should face it. For us today, uh, there will be times when we look at a situation and yet come to a very different conclusion to that of other Christians as to what is best to do. And that is okay. Uh, where there is no specific teaching of the Bible to guide, then it's not a matter of being right or wrong. What is best is a grey area. Uh, is it not tempting in such situations to think of those holding the other opinion of them as being wrong? And yet it is best to view the distinction as rather as different. They have a different opinion rather than a wrong opinion. Why? Because sometimes good people come to different conclusions when looking at the same situation. That's the first principle. Secondly, uh, sometimes it's right to ignore what everyone else is saying. Uh, to Paul, it must have seemed like the whole church was against him going to Jerusalem. Every group of Christians he encounters on his journey have the same viewpoint. Uh, their advice is pithily echoed by the 1979 hit of the pop group KC and the Sunshine Band, another classic. Their song was, Please Don't Go. And yet for Paul, it was right to go. And it is a timely reminder to us that the majority opinion will not always be right. 
sometimes the minority opinion is correct. It's okay even to be in a minority of one. Therefore, standing by the courage of our convictions will in some instances be the best way forward. Third principle, sometimes it's wise to listen to what everyone else is saying. On some occasions, uh, it is wise to ignore what everyone else is saying. Um, And with Paul, uh, of course, we see he wouldn't be swayed from going to Jerusalem. And yet on other occasions, it is wise to actually heed what others are saying. And when Paul gets to Jerusalem, of course, he is advised to undergo this ritual purification. And this time, he doesn't say no, but he says yes. He is swayed by the suggestion. He agrees. I remember uh, Peter Hasty, uh, who is the minister of Asheville Presbyterian, recounting to me uh, a dilemma he found himself in, uh, probably about five or six years ago now. Uh, he was the minister of uh, uh, Asheville Presbyterian, was very settled in his ministry there, had been there for many years. It was still very fruitful. And as far as he was concerned, uh, he thought he would be there for many years thereafter. And yet a position came up, the vacancy position of the principal of the Melbourne uh, Presbyterian Theological College. And so uh, people started coming to Peter and saying, Peter, we think that you would be very well suited to be the principal of the Theological College in Melbourne. And at first he said, no. But people kept coming to him. He said, no, I'm very settled here. And yet they kept coming. He says, no. They said, look, we need prayerfully reconsider this. And eventually people were so persistent that actually started to think, maybe I should go. And of course, in the end, he realized, under God, it was right for him to go. And he did. So sometimes it is wise to listen to what other people are saying. So how can we tell when to listen to others and when not to? Well, it is a matter of discernment and wisdom. And discernment and wisdom are hallmarks of Christian maturity. An immature Christian will often lean towards one of two extremes. On the one hand, immature Christians only care about what others think. Uh, They are, in effect, held hostage to the opinion and the approval of others. On the other hand, immature Christians never care about what others think. They have this arrogant self-confidence that thinks they have a monopoly on wisdom. No one else has anything worthwhile to contribute to this matter. And yet a mature, wise Christian recognizes and prayerfully weighs up the advice of others. Fourth principle. Uh, Sometimes the hard way is the best way. Uh, There is wisdom in not rejecting certain paths just because they seem too hard. Uh, In Acts, Luke Luke is deliberately developing a parallel between Jesus and Paul. Uh, Both Jesus and Paul set their face to go to Jerusalem, knowing that suffering and hardship await for them there. Both Jesus and Paul will be rejected by the Jewish people, the Messiah first, then the Messiah's messenger. Of course, the main distinction is that Jesus' suffering was redemptive for humanity, whereas Paul's wasn't. So, for us today, the path that Christ calls us to walk will sometimes be hard, 
but to walk the, that way is the best way. Uh, sometimes the hard way is the best way. Uh, maybe it is working out a difficult marriage. Maybe it's confronting sin in ourselves or somebody else. Maybe it's that struggle to humble ourselves and to ask for forgiveness and to seek reconciliation. Sometimes the hard way is the best way. It's what Jesus refers to as taking up our cross. But that is not to say that the hard way is always the best way. Because the fifth principle is, sometimes the easy way is not the wrong way. Uh, if you recall in Acts chapter 19, we had the riot in Ephesus. Uh, two of Paul's traveling companions, uh, Gaius and Asterachus, have been dragged by a livid mob into the local theater. Uh, Paul wants to enter the theater, we're told, and speak to the crowd. But the Christians, the believers there say, don't do it. And so, he heeds their advice, and he doesn't. The point is this, it's misguided to think that the gospel calls us to do whatever gives us the best chance of dying. It's misguided to think that way. It's not wise to say that the hardest way is always the smartest way. Uh, sixth principle, uh, sometimes it's right to be absolutely inflexible. Where something compromises the gospel, uh, then not an inch should be conceded. Uh, we see repeatedly in Paul's letters that he was absolutely intolerant and inflexible about any attempt to redefine the gospel. He says, if anyone teaches any other way of salvation, then let them be accursed, anathema. And yet when it comes to disputable matters, Paul was gentle and flexible and accommodating. He was willing to undergo the ritual cleansing for the sake of his relationship with his Jewish brothers in Jerusalem. He held his freedom in his hands, but he held his freedom lightly. As Christians, we have great freedom in Christ. Yet we should always hold our freedom lightly when considering what is best for the gospel. Now, somebody's put it like this. I like this summary statement. A truly free spirit is not in bondage to his or her freedom. A truly free spirit is not in bondage to his or her freedom. So, seventhly, uh, the only way to find your way when there is more than one way is to develop a mind of wisdom and a heart for the gospel. Out of concern for his safety, Paul decides he will not enter the riotous theater in Ephesus. And yet now he's prepared to risk his life and limb in going to Jerusalem. Uh, what was the difference? Well, it seems that Paul had concluded it would not serve the gospel for him to die at the hands of the mob in Ephesus. Uh, he was motivated by a heart for the gospel. And the repeated question that he asks in every situation was, what will help the cause of the gospel? And when it came to going to Jerusalem, his conclusion was, this is important for the gospel. I should go. When we come to ourselves today, sometimes God places us in situations that are not simple. There are no hard and fast rules. Uh, they require wisdom. 
Sometimes what is wise in one situation is not wise in another. Look at Proverbs 26, verse 4. Uh, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. Okay, that's fair enough. But look at what the following verse says. Proverbs 26, verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Well, uh, should we answer a fool according to his folly or not? Uh, Which is right? Is it verse 4? Is it verse 5? Well, the answer is yes. Only wisdom will give us the tools to discern what is best in a situation. In the words of the 1979 hit by Kenny Rogers, the American country singer, you've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. What pithy words of wisdom we've had this morning and a great musical cultural education. Uh, We want definite answers. We want an audible voice from heaven. We want a fleece which will answer our dilemma without any doubt. However, that is not the norm as to how God intends us to live. God wants us to grow our heart as increasingly trusting Him. And as we feel our great inadequacy, God wants us to humbly cry out to Him for wisdom. James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. There are many situations in life which are grey. We will sometimes feel threatened or frustrated by the difficulty of making a decision. We feel the crushing weight of the dilemma. We worry. We are anxious about the future. We may even say, why, God, have you put me in this dilemma? This is hard. This is stressful. It's wearing me down. So today, it's a timely reminder to ourselves that God uses every situation for our good. We can say with absolute confidence this, whatever the dilemma is, God has put me in this situation that I might learn wisdom and develop godly character. And so we do move forward. We listen carefully to Scripture. We listen respectfully to the advice of others. We weigh up prayerfully what to do, and then we make a decision, entrusting ourselves to to the God who is sovereign over everything. And we echo the words of Luke and and Paul's other, uh, other anxious friends in verse 14. The Lord's will be done. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we live in life often faced with decisions which are weighty and tricky and grey. Sometimes your scripture does give us a definite leading, but other areas it doesn't, and we need to know how under your hand to move forward. Please, we pray, give us wisdom and discernment. Help us to mature as Christian people being able to discern what is wise in situations so that we move forward. And where we're in dilemmas where we really uh, do not know, help us to make a choice having prayerfully considered it and then to move forward trusting you for the future. Amen.